Welcome to episode 347 of TechSec. In today's show, Jason is talking to Brett Kennedy, head of robotics at JPL. Well, Brett, welcome to the show. Um, Justin has been uh, pushing to get this interview going for a while now, <laughs> and uh, I guess he didn't want to do it. He wanted me to do it because he thinks I'm the bigger of the nerd of the bigger nerd of the two of us. So, if we're going to get into robotics, it's like we're going going full nerd here. Well, but- I'll, I'll try not. I'll try hard not to out nerd because uh, you know there's always that danger. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, this is Nerd Central, so we can we can dig in, we can go in. But before we get into that, I think Justin says something that you were uh, also a soccer player that you you played at Cal or something like that. Is I that played right? uh, I played soccer through high school, and then I played rugby actually at Cal. Oh, okay, all yeah. right, that's cool, right? Okay, so I was wondering what Justin was said there was some kind of connection there. We were both soccer players or something. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I, I, I okay. we, we played good some some good high school uh, soccer. We I, I was lucky. I actually had. Um, uh, my two coaches in high school um, played on the U.S. junior national team and then, and then uh, on the national wow. team. So um, I was joking with Justin because the, the better of the two soccer players was by far the worst of the two coaches. Yeah, that is kind of interesting how sometimes uh, good players are not very good coaches and vice versa. There doesn't always seem to be a, a, a super high correlation there. Once someone has a rudimentary understanding of the game, or at least a, a, a reasonable level of understanding the game. Beyond that, it's it's uh, other other attributes, which is like teaching, right? You can have, you know, I'm sure people who are amazing scientists and mathematicians who just can't explain anything for for the life of them, you know. So yeah, um, yeah. So let's 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 get right into it. I mean, I'm going to ask the burning question that everyone has in their mind: is when is the robot revolution going to occur? You know, I mean, we've been <laughs> we've been promised this since uh terminator or, or even before and it's just not happening i mean what, what what's what's it going to take when's this thing happening because i am for one i'm ready to kick some robot but yeah no uh it would be really <laughs> easy to do that um you know I, I i people keep telling me i need to to read the how to survive the robot apocalypse but you know we're right i think we're far enough away from that that i'm not too concerned um and you know a lot of that has to do with just how our robots experience the world um, and that's mm-hmm. the part that I think we're actually the furthest behind on. But there's some other really practical aspects too. Like, you know, that's all well and good that you've got this AI that can figure all this stuff out. But if it runs on, you know, 16,000 cores at the in the Google server farm, yeah, that's nice. But you, you can't stuff that into a mobile system. So, uh, you know, people are working around that in certain ways, like cloud computing actually feeding the robot directly. So the, the brains of the robot really aren't on board. But that's not a very practical thing for most cases, you know, as as our own, you know, tele uh, connection shows, right? If you have a, you know, safety critical thing and your robot stops talking to the cloud, well, what do you do? Um, so Yeah, yeah. So, right. I mean, that was sort of my, my you know, I was kind of playing with two different intros. But their intro is why are the, why are the robots so, still so lame? You know, it's like I have this. You know, we have these two little like vacuum robots that just annoy the crap out of me because they're just bumping and everything and they make a ton <laughs> of noise and they're just incredibly dumb and slow. And you're just like, God, like how long does it take you to vacuum the living room? You're just, you know, and um, I think I have like a war with these things, you know, I'm like, constantly turning them off and my wife's turning them back on. And it was like, you know, like, you know, and obviously the, you know, robot vacuums are not the end all be all the robots we have available to them, but it's like, you think in 2022, we'd, we'd got some pretty cool stuff, you know, I mean, it, it just, it, you know, and, and so I kind of want to get into, um, 
you know, some more, more into that. So you, you say like a lot of it is just the onboard intel processing just isn't there, which is a little surprising because you think like how I was, I was expecting the opposite response. It's like, well, we got, you know, not really powerful microprocessors now and we've made some, and that stuff is, you know, Moore's law and all that over the last 10, 20 years or 30 years has just gone through the roof and it's just, you know, limitations on the mechanics of it. That this is onboard power is limited and, you know, you look at these robots on Mars and they move like 30 meters in a day and they go like super slow. And you're just like, really? Like, that's that's the best we got. We, we're, we're breaking records now at like 200 meters a day on Mars. <laughs> and we call that fast driving. I mean, we literally call that that is the fast driving algorithm. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. OK, so so what's I mean, I guess what's happening on Mars might be a little different than what we're it doing is. on Earth. We have a different set of constraints and stuff. But if you could get a little bit into the process, more into the processing stuff. And then also I'd like to get into the mechanics, too. Like what are the mechanical limitations, the power limitations? I mean, what do, what do we what are the real constraints that we're dealing with here? Yeah, no, it's one of the reasons I love mobile robotics so much is that there's no place to hide. Right. There is no aspect of the system where you get a free lunch. And so mm -hmm. um, the computational power that you can have on board is limited uh, by how much you know electricity you can supply to it how much actual energy and that's tied into batteries and then you know the batteries aren't it's not just how many joules are in it, it's how fast you can pull those joules out uh, and so uh memory limitations um and then you know as i mentioned the like the sensing systems we get by you know the the best robots we have really get by mostly on vision a little bit mm -hmm. on these, um, you know, internal accelerometers that let it balance a little bit. But if you compare that to the way any biological system gets around in the world, it's not using anything, um, really. Mm -hmm. uh, the ability to touch, the ability to hear, uh, and, and an understanding of its own internal system, like all of those inputs are really primitive relative to even the simplest of, of biological examples. Um, and that you know, lends itself to, so how, why don't we have better of those things? And well, you know, because it, it, it gets down to silly stuff like your wiring, wiring up a robot is a really heavy, you know, copper is a lousy, you know, way to spend your mass. Um, and, and, um, that's basically how you're going to get those signals around. And it's hard. If you have a lot of sensors, it's hard to, to find places for them. It's hard to find places for the wires. It's hard to find. So all of these things conspire to, you know, get us to where we are. And, and you can look at it like in real time with the autonomous vehicles because they've got a relatively simple job. Like when we talk right. about in-house robots and stuff like that, that's a really difficult environment relative to just driving around on a road and keeping track of other metal boxes. Uh, and that's not even going super well uh, relative to where you think you we might have been otherwise. Um, if you just yeah, I think I I saw an inter I listened to an interview. It might have been on NPR or something, and it was like there's some um, self-driving critic. For, I think she's a you know artificial intelligence expert at Duke, and she's like, yeah, this is none of this stuff is close. And I, I know we keep talking like it is, but it's just it's just not. And it's pretty compelling, <laughs> you know. It seems <laughs> like you know it's like yeah, if you're in if you're in Arizona and you're driving this big wide road and you're not yeah okay, it can it can do pretty well but that's not how most driving occurs and it's just still because i remember i remember talking about this uh you know whatever 10 years ago and it seemed like self-driving cars the way it was going was like five years away you know with 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 what google was doing or waymo and in in uber and you know everybody was you know angling to get the first 
you know, approved car. And then it was sort of like, yeah, this isn't really going to happen now. Um, yeah. Have you been following along with the self-driving car stuff? Is that is that is that too far removed from what you even think about or worry about? Or you've been sort of monitoring uh, that yourself? You know, the uh, no, I, I've certainly been keeping up with it as much as I could. And, you know, Chris Urmson, who was at Google and, and now in Waymo and Aurora, um, you know, I, I worked with him way back in grad school on space robots before he mm. you know got into the, the AV stuff. So, you know, I've been keeping track of uh, where they are and what they can do. And it's really impressive. I've been in, you know, I, I was in a Google autonomous car, took a ride in it. It is amazing uh, that it can even right. do what it does. But there's a gulf between, you know, even amazing and then just getting out there on the road and being a practical. And I, you know, I'd probably give you a different answer if I could say I could take all of the people off of the road, the drivers off the road, I should say, and replace them with autonomous cars. Because if it was just nothing but autonomous cars, we would probably be fine. Um, right. It's just, it's just, it's, it's what, it's what the crazy other driver is going to do. Um, pe people which, are really difficult you, to deal with. <laughs> yeah. I could say that in just about every possible way. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I used to uh, have a motorcycle when I was in high school and college. And the one thing we think about is just expect the unexpected. I mean, you were scanning, you know, because obviously the costs are so much higher in a motorcycle. I mean, if someone pulls out front of you and you're going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour, you're basically dead. So, um, and people, do weird things and they pull out and they cut the hit the brakes or whatever and it's like you have to expect the unexpected you're scanning left right left right left right who's who's got to do something and uh you still don't always catch it so yeah i can it's like um it's like i can drive a motorcycle and no problem the chance that i'm just gonna like wreck on an empty road is like zero but the fact if you're through rush hour traffic and people are cutting you know there's you know Something's going to happen. You know, you if you do it every day for a few years, like, there's a pretty good chance that something's going to at least almost happen. Yeah. Which now, isn't good. Well, hopefully not too much log rolling. But, you know, the other way I'm keeping track of the last couple of years is I've been doing consulting uh, for a company uh, called DRISC that does edge case research. Mm -hmm. And so trying to find out ways that to collect what, you know, that motorcycle rider looks like and uh, turning that into a case that, that these uh, autonomous vehicles can train on. Um, and one of the things that, uh, again, as amazing as all of the, the uh, Google Waymo work was, and a lot of the work is, there's a reason that it was so successful in Mountain View, California, and not someplace else. Um, <laughs> right, not and, New York City. Yeah, and so trying, that's like, we, we talk about that, it's, it's sort of the middle of the cases, right? It's, it's, that's mm -hmm. the, the central, relatively easy stuff. And they rack up these millions of miles, but they're not very difficult miles. Uh, and, but trying to look at it the way, you know, when you build robots for space, it's just all about how's it going to kill us? How is, how is space going to kill us? How's Mars going to kill us? And we just, it's just a very paranoid kind of way of approaching the problem because you have to be. Uh, and when you apply that back to sort of autonomous vehicles, you look at it and you're like, you guys haven't been trying the hard stuff yet for really good reasons, right? There's there's mm -hmm. a good reason not to have started with the hardest problems first. Um, but if you're only sort of doing the middle parts, um, then you don't really understand how hard the problem is. And um, so we talk about edge case and dealing with the edge cases, and then you get the interior cases for free. Uh, right, right. So um, speaking of the, uh, the, the training, let's, uh, you know, how how much when you're when you're sort of developing, perfecting, testing 
a robot, how much of it is happening in simulation versus in the real world? I mean, do you do you sort of have like a simulated 2D or 3D environments where you just, you know, do the first 90, 95% of the of the software development and then it's because working in the real world is so much slower. I mean, you can run simulations, you know, probably a thousand times faster. I mean, how, how does that process work, um, you know, just in terms of the software development itself? Yeah, it depends a lot, right? So speaking from uh, the work on, on space robots that I've done, you know, we actually don't use trained systems uh, very much uh, for very certain problems uh, and, and only just now. Uh, up till now, basically, we've done all of the software development around deterministic algorithms. Um, and what that says is that we don't actually have to train on anything. Uh, we test some stuff, uh, but we're not training on it. And because we're right, right. So you mean so so like machine learned versus say control theory or some type of an expert system type exactly. of a thing. Yeah, right. So right. you know, so so I don't know. Do you, I don't know if you uh, have you worked with Adam Weirman from Caltech? I think he's no. been working with sort of the Mars, some of the some of the Mars rover systems, and he's works in that sort of intersection of control theory and machine learning. And um, he's uh, he's actually um, I know him through Math Academy, and he's uh, donated some of his time to work with some of our um, upperclassmen. And uh, anyway, he, that's what he was telling me. He's like, you know, JPL, he's like, there's a lot of resistance or concern or just sort of caution around the idea of using trained systems. Mm -hmm. It's like, if we don't know absolutely what it's going to do in every situation, we can't use it. As opposed to like, can you prove that this is going to do what it's supposed to do? Is, is, so I'd love if you talk a little bit about that. Um, yeah. I mean, how much of it is sort of like, cultural like this is just how we do things how much of it is like limitations on processing how much is it is to like look we just have to this thing is a, a billion dollar operation and and we're just not going to risk anything to some stochastic you know estimation it's going to be deterministic yeah so it's mostly that that last bit so there are two things i think that really heavily play into it uh one is how much it costs you know the taxpayers mm -hmm. uh, get really upset when you you know waste a bunch of money um mm -hmm. or 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 do something that's perceived as wasting a bunch of money because something broke. Uh, right. so the risk posture is very conservative, uh, for that reason. Um, the other part of it is, is actually somewhat tied to cost, but it's actually more about opportunity. Um, so for instance, Mars, we really can only go there every two years. Like even if we wanted to just go to Mars all the time, that's still every two years. And just because uh, that's when the planets are close enough that you're not wasting a ton of fuel and flight time. Right. So yeah. they can be in line. Right. Yeah. So yeah. if you don't actually, it's funny as a little, given our current propulsion technologies and whatnot, uh, we can actually, if we wait two years, uh, so that we're launching at the optimal time, we can actually beat, uh, a mission that's launched at the non-optimal time. Mm, um, wow. So okay. there's like not even a point to, to bothering to try to do it more often. Uh, right. And so, but yeah, I mean, you're talking about, and in, in, in reality, be partially because of the money, but also because there are other things that we want to do, uh, we don't launch every two years. Uh, so you're talking about big chunks of people's careers just to get one of these things off the ground. And right. so if you're talking about that much investment of time, uh, even calendar time, then, uh, you don't want to, uh, expose yourself to, to mistakes, uh, that, um, will come along with, with, you know, people. Learned systems make mistakes, uh, and it's got to be okay. Uh, but um, mm -hmm. we're not normally, and I'm going to say this it, it, you know, explicitly, we're not normally in an environment where that risk is, is allowable. Uh, right. Now, 
Could we change that? Can we change the risk posture? Yeah, absolutely. And some of the stuff we're working on right now that's going to the moon is much cheaper. You know, it's three days to the moon. It's not um, seven to, you know, 16 months. Um, and mm-hmm. it doesn't take up as much resources altogether. And so the risk posture, hopefully, uh, will continue to be much more aggressive there. And we can do some things that are much more uh, advanced as in application uh, as as the state of the art is uh, on the ground. So it's, it's and really I would imagine a with And I imagine with like SpaceX having brought down the cost of launch so much lower that the stuff can just happen much more frequently. Is that is that part of the equation too? It's like before you had to go, you know, take a take a hitch a ride on a on a on a, a Russian, you know, rocket, yeah, right. you know, yeah. from built in the sixties I mean, or something. Yeah. We could, you know, the stuff uh, the stuff that we've been launching our rovers on and whatnot. That's all still. Uh, those are still U.S. rockets. I think it's only the the ISS okay. stuff that has to rely on the Russians. But um, yeah, that, I think we haven't seen the dividends of that yet. Uh, but it is okay. a, an enormously important thing when you're spending you know, a quarter or so of your entire mission cost on the launch, uh, you want to, um, you know, if you can drive that down, then yeah, you can be much more aggressive, but it is interesting because it always comes back to, um, you know, what the American taxpayer is willing to pay for, uh, and what Congress is willing to support and things like that. Right. Right. Okay. So I have like three or four different directions I can go. And unfortunately we'll probably have to loop back on some of this stuff because, uh, um, okay. So speaking of reducing the cost, um, how much when you're when you're building these these robots, um, how much of it is stuff that you're manufacturing in house versus having development partners? I mean, is it just like you use the microprocessors and then you do everything yourself or you actually have like, hey, you have these these awesome robot manufacturers and then you just kind of work with them to perf- to build something that you want to spec. I mean, how, how does that whole process work? Yeah, I mean, to date, um, it's been uh all of it's bespoke. I mean, there, there are certainly mm-hmm. elements of it, um, the processors, but even, you know, I, I talk about those being purchased items. They're still very, you know, rare and they're, you know, going back a ways, they were the things that you found in missiles. And so we, we only had mm-hmm. that stuff because it was the only radiation hard stuff. Um, mm-hmm. the, the helicopter we're flying right now is a huge departure because we're using these Snapdragon commercial processors and among other things just living with the idea that they will flip bits every now and again uh so, and, so the heli just to, just to clarify the helicopter you're talking yeah. about is the one that's flying around on mars right right no right 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 okay um so yeah. that's a, so that's you a, have the radiation you have the radiation problems on mars just like you have them in space right because there's a limit there's the, yeah. the atmosphere is so thin and the uh, things that you just have no magnetic huge radiation field. problems which yep. just totally screw up the circuitry if they're not hardened right yeah. Well, it's interesting because it's not even really like screwing up the circuitry. It's it's actually literally flipping bits. Um, mm, okay. And so, yeah, when you're when your zeros turn to one and vice versa, the weird things start to happen with your your system. And so a lot yeah, that's of what the, happens with my code all the time. I mean, I write perfect code, then every once in a while, like a rage just flips it. And, yeah, you know. that's the real reason that yeah, code code bit rot is is a real thing, and it's caused by cosmic rays. <laughs> right. Right. Damn those uh, cosmic rays. <laughs> screwing up my screwing up my code so um but that's a good so example we, we, to your question right yeah. so we, we the the helicopter is not part of the flagship right the rover is the flagship thing the helicopter was a an engineering demonstration and so we demonstrated it and the the risk posture was very aggressive we pulled it off um and uh it it's been you know way past its warranty at this point 
And mm-hmm. it would be great to do more and more of that stuff, but it, it takes that sort of political will to allow that to happen. And the political will is, so you have to get, I mean, I may imagine how much, how much, how much additional cost was it to get that built on top of the, the, the basic Rover? Was that like double the cost or, or, or how much? Of a... Oh, no. I mean that the Rover, well, you know, the Rover, I think, uh, by the time it was all said and done, uh, uh I think is somewhere around two and a half billion for the entire mission. And of mm-hmm. that, the helicopter is like 80 million. Okay. So, so it's relatively, it's nothing small. Yeah. But that's been like the big headline grabber, right? Because that seems like way cool is having this helicopter as opposed to, hey, the rover moved, like you said, 200 meters to the end. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh, okay, well. yeah. Have we been the doing that for like 30 it. years? You know, <laughs> yeah, the scientists love it. Oh, we can look at some new rocks. Everyone's yeah. like, eh. you know, I've seen this movie before. I've seen this documentary before. This from like 94, What you know. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the helicopter. Were you involved in the construction or design or how, you know, or was this, was that a different department? So, no, the section I run uh, is responsible for getting the helicopter built. Um, And so um, it's not, you know, uh, it's funny because I had to give a history lesson to some of the the engineers working on it because uh, we did the first uh, autonomous safe landing with helicopters at JPL 20 years ago. And so Mm. when I was a, you know, youngster engineer, I was building the boxes that held the sensors underneath this um, they're actually, um, quarter scale helicopters, like just, mm-hmm. but otherwise like a standard helicopter and, mm-hmm. um, that they use for crop testing and a bunch of other things. But so this is before drones and in the proliferation mm-hmm. of, of rotorcraft. Um, so we were building those things and doing that stuff 20 years ago. And then, you know, it just takes some time to, for these things to, to, um, come together, you know, and. Yeah. So Air Environment, you know, built uh, the majority of the flight gear, the, you know, JPL responsible for the, well, you'll hear me say avionics. When I say that, it's mm-hmm. just basically the the stack, right? So JPL is responsible for the stack. Uh, you know, it's got a, a Qualcomm Snapdragon um, stack in there. And with a, you know, what, what, could of, you go, just go into a little, what is, what is that? What is a Snapdragon what is what is that you're talking about exactly uh so qualcomm you know it sells they have a, a toolbox um mm-hmm. and of of components and can so mm-hmm. compute uh elements memory elements etc cetera, etc cetera, uh, that you can put together they are putting you know the snapdragons together for various applications all sorts of embedded systems um and including um autonomous vehicles so there's like a uh, an auto industry version of the Snapdragon kit and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. So it's it's a general compute kit uh, and stack, and then we're using a particular version of it with uh, particular elements of it. And this is and and this kit on, on top of its main purpose has to be sort of radiation hardened to some degree, right? So this is this is not more expensive, as heavier, much. whatever. Yeah. No. It's uh. So it's not. It is um, what might be thought of as, as radiation tolerant um, in that mm-hmm. it is uh, basically not worried about shielding in any particular way. But there are ways of, for instance, you know, this, these are just sort of general techniques, right? So one of the things mm-hmm. you can do is you have uh, four processors running anything at any one time and they all have mm-hmm. to vote. And so as long as three of them agree, uh, you can assume that the fourth one just, you know, took some radiation and and you'll be fine 
Yeah, it's funny. I, I remember my uh, buddy of mine who I, I did my first startup with, he said his dad had hit, there's some project where they had to have these da- huge amount of data entry, this stuff and get it into, this is before OCR or whatever. And so he had three people doing it. And if any, if there was any disagreement, they just took the two that would agree. So it's the exact, exact same. Of course you went, I guess, extra safety. We'll do four. Like, let's just, yeah. that's, that's sort of, it's like, a, it's like a, it's like a almost like a stupidly obvious thing to do. Like people wouldn't do it. It's like I oh, just before on there three. I'm like, huh? Okay. Yeah. That's a, that's pretty clever. Yeah. Uh, that's pretty. Yeah. I mean, it's, so the, it's, it's one of those things. that's clever. It's so simple. You almost wouldn't think about it. But then it's <laughs> when you do it, you're like, oh, that's and of course this is all we gotta do. Yeah, and it's nice. You know, with with this is where the development of of components has really helped out because now we can have four fully functional you know pipelines. Uh, put together in in the same space that you know in a smaller space than just one of them. Um, but to give you an idea of what that means to us, um, there is more computational power in the helicopter than there is in total of all the missions that we've ever flown to Mars before, like that have landed on wow. the surface of Mars before. So it's just so, you know a whole different world. All right, so so we to to to, to do apples to apples or whatever, like so. How much computational power is that compared to, say, your typical laptop computer? I mean, is it like 10 times more powerful or is it, you know? No, I mean, it's, it's actually probably pretty comparable to your, your, you know, standard laptop at this point. Right. Okay. Because these, you know, obviously these not laptops are, are can can do quite a bit. So, um, well, let's let's talk a little bit about the, the helicopter. Okay. So you're going to get this helicopter to fly on Mars and the atmosphere is a fraction of what our atmosphere is. So it had to spin at like much faster rate, I think I read. And. And so I, I'd like to, if you could talk a little bit about how, how you did the calculations and to make that w- work. And also, I mean, how do you even test that? I mean, how do you just say, well, it, it worked on, uh, what's, the, what's the joke? It worked on um, a Kerbal. <laughs> it worked on Kerbal. You know, it's like, how do you, I don't know, I guess we'll find out when it gets to Mars. I mean, how do you, how do you test yeah. something like that? Uh, that's a really good example because it is so difficult to test these things under realistic conditions. Um, and... So, yes, that's where we do a lot of calculations, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, NASA Ames and other um, areas in NASA that have more of the aeronautics side of things uh, mm-hmm. lent their, their capabilities to us. And AeroVironment itself, you know, is obviously, uh, you know, well experienced with all these things. And so you're just tweaking those numbers and simulation uh, to, mm-hmm. to get yourself in the realm. Uh, and then we stuff it in a vacuum chamber and we take it down to the, the nine. So you can create so. a vacuum chamber that has the exact same sort of atmospheric condition. So you, okay. So you actually could physical, it wasn't like you just cross yeah. your fingers, wait a couple of years and see if your calculations worked. Right. Yeah. So we, we could get it in the chamber, you know, and, and basically anything that we send to Mars, uh, in, and actually anything we send to the moon is going to go into one of these chambers, uh, which is going to take it to the right temperature and pressure, uh, to test at. Uh, so that's a big one uh, in terms of that's what really cool. How big is do. this? How how big is this chamber? Well, we got it various sizes, but um, mm-hmm. the biggest one at JPL is twenty five feet in diameter, and uh, I forget how tall it is, but but taller than that. Um, mm-hmm. It also comes with a the ability to, to um, emulate the sun, uh, the incident radiation from the sun mm. uh, wow. so for thermal effects, and so yeah, that's a on the National Historic Registry because it's you know all. Basically, a lot of any anything that's gone past the moon for a lot of decades has gone through that chamber. Um, but it's a huge facility. It's a huge investment uh, of time and money to do that kind of stuff. 
Right. So, so um, how how much just to, just on the basic uh, stats, like how much fa- how how heavy is this thing as the as the as the helicopter and how much fast? It has like what four rotor blades or something, and it speeds it's, at some. Multiple yeah, so they're a normal helicopter. They're four blades. Uh, I, I have to admit, I don't have all of that stuff at the fingertips, mm-hmm. so I'll, I'll, I'll mm-hmm. muddle through. Um, but it does have uh, two. So basically, there are two props uh, that are counter rotating. So uh, oh. it gets away with not having a tail like a like a sort of standard helicopter design uh, mm-hmm. because it doesn't have to react the torque that's uh, caused by the the rotor because uh, there's these two mm-hmm. counter rotating. So so yeah, it's basically a total of four blades. Uh, but two, you know, they're paired up together and they're kind of rotating. Um, and so that's super cool. I mean, why why don't we have helicopters in the U.S.? I mean, in the not U.S. but in the, in the uh, our normal helicopters work like that because that sounds that's sounds really cool. Uh, it's uh, my understanding, and I'm not a rotorcraft person per mm-hmm. se. I just play one on TV on occasion. Um, is that uh, that basically the maneuverability is much much lower with the counter rotating mm-hmm. uh, prop because you're not. You don't really have the same sort of control uh, authority over um, uh, all of your degrees of freedom in the same way. Sorry, got it. Got nerdy. It, got it. Okay. So no, hey, I, this, this um, that was really that's really interesting. No, I'm sorry. So I interrupted. You were you were going to explain something else about the the, the craft itself? Oh, uh, you were asking. Oh, the, the just in terms of how fast, like, so you're spinning fast enough, so you can either. Uh, to get enough lift, because uh, the surface mm-hmm. of Mars is roughly where we are, is roughly like uh, Earth at 100,000 feet. Um, and so mm-hmm. you either have to okay. spin fast or you have to spin uh, spin really long blades. And mm-hmm. um, really long blades were not much of an option for us. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, they're pretty big relative to the size of the, air, uh, the aircraft itself. But um, yeah, no, so we just had to spin fast. How how far can the, the, can the helicopter go before it has to, you know, before it yeah. runs out of power? Yeah, we haven't really tested it yet, but um, I think, you know, sub-kilometer, we've done hundreds of meters, um, you know, mm-hmm. so you go about, you know, you can go 10-ish meters up and hundreds of meters over-ish. Um, mm. uh, it's always, this is one of those places where how far could we go and how far are we willing to trust ourselves to try are two different right, things. Right, because if... Because you came in, it's like, yeah, Bill decided to go extra longer, and now we lost it, we can't recover it, and was like, What? Right, so we're no one's gonna let Bill, you know, go crazy. Everybody's just like, right, everything is really, I guess, closely managed. It's so expensive. So I, yeah. I get it. that's the that's super cool. So, um, how far in advance? I mean, is this is is you know not to spend too much? It's, you call it the rotorcraft? Is that what you're you call? Oh, call rotorcraft just being anything that's like a helicopter. You know, so okay. yeah, all, all the what's the name of it? And, yeah. Uh, what do you well, Leonardo, it? right, is Leonardo. Um, okay. is what we called it inside. Well, I was going to say, so Leonardo is what we called it inside of JPL. And then uh, okay. its ingenuity it was its official NASA name. Got it. Okay. Ingenuity. Okay. So um, how how long was it for some ingenuity became like a serious um, design concept? Somebody came out, not somebody, some wrote in a sketchbook at, you know, one night, but you guys said, all right, look, this is something we think we want to do. How long did that take? from concept to okay we're launching this baby you know i'd probably give that um in in earnest probably about four years mm-hmm. um maybe maybe closer to five but you know if you depending on how you wanted to, to count it in part because we actually had to add it to the the rover so the rover was going and then we had to convince a lot of people to actually let us fly the helicopter on it um, and again this is sort of that risk posture part of it Right. And so what was the resistance? It was just that it was going to 
you know, when the thing's going to land on Mars, that it's going to add weight or it let, accrue, screw up the stability or balance or something. What, what was the what was the real resistance it's, there? Or because yeah. they wanted to include more stuff on the rover, and they're like, well, look, now we got to give weight to you guys, and now we can't <laughs> put on these these instruments that we wanted. We did this cool chemistry experiment, and you know, all the chemistry department's pissed, you know, or or whatever. I mean, what, what was what was sort of the negotiation there? Yeah, I think most of it is is uh, the risk of because you got to get it off the rover at some point or another, um, mm-hmm. right? And so, uh, and and it's an added system that's sort of parasitic. So you got to figure mm-hmm. out how to isolate the risk of the helicopter away from the rover. And you know, uh, at the end of the day, what it comes down to, and particularly the way that we actually mounted it to the rover, which is to the belly, was that if the helicopter came off badly or didn't come off at all or any of those sorts of things, uh, we couldn't endanger the prime mission, which is the rover. And so a lot of it's just getting the thing off, but also there's some of those resources you were talking about and added mass and and things like that. But I think mostly it's the risk. And anytime you're, you're plugging something into something else, because it does have to be sort of a hard plug, uh, you're introducing an, an added place where something can go wrong. And yeah. as I mentioned, people uh, that that do this for a living don't like extra things, you know, that can go wrong. <laughs> hey, I, I, as somebody who does customer support for his own code, like I've always like, I don't know if I want to add that feature, right? Like, do I really <laughs> want to add this complexity? Because feel like I feel like I'm gonna be waking up at seven a.m. tomorrow morning with a bunch of bug reports. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I get it. Um, so okay, so I got a, I got a few places places to go places to go with this. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about how you got into this and, and, and your path, because I think that'd be kind of interesting. It's like, so how does somebody wind up, you know, in charge of robotics and mobility and stuff at JPL? I mean, that sounds super cool. Someone says, oh, I want to, you know, I'm going to be a robotics engineer at NASA or something. It's like, okay, well, you know, I want to play in the NBA, you know. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it was, you <laughs> and, know. And she wants to be a rock star. I mean, you know, like, what, yeah. how do you get there? You know, how do you what, get how, there? What's the path? Um, it helps to have decided that you want to build robots, uh, when you were nine, you know, eight and nine okay. years old is a good, good time to, to decide that that's what you want to do. That will, that will smooth the path just a little, cause you know what you're okay. supposed to be studying. And that was um, you in this speaking personal experience. So you were playing yeah. with robots as a, as a kid. Okay. Yeah. Okay. No, I, I, uh, I had a really, I, I mean, I, I liked robots anyway, in general, and it helped that my father was an engineer, but, um, you know, we went to Japan when I was eight mm-hmm. and the, even then, the the Japanese relationship with robots is completely different uh, mm-hmm. than sort of Western cultures, and so you know they're not looking at Terminator style things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Ghost in the Shell aside, but uh, it's more of um, you know their their robots are animated with spirit, and they have character, mm-hmm. and they're there to help in a lot of ways. And and so you you know just watching cartoons at eight years old in Japan is a sort of eye opening experience mm-hmm. and uh, and i came back with some really really cool toys uh mm. and really well made and so you know i i think that was i'm sure i was already sketching these sorts of things but that was kind of when i started just like oh i want to build robots um but the problem was there was no such thing uh at that age and so i went to school and you know i uh, went into the engineering program at berkeley there were lots of controls lots of um you know, that sort of thing. But robots were still basically an industrial item. And I, I worked right. That's like I- on the, like the, 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 the assembly line, a GM or something. It was, yeah. Or whatever. It's yeah. 
Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I worked at IBM uh, when they were building disk drives in San Jose uh, mm-hmm. on the, you know, the automated lines. And we had, you know, robots putting disk drives together, which was super cool. Um, but uh, it just so happened that I, um, you know, came from this area, knew about JPL and um, really finally relented to my parents, um, you know, like you should, you should go check out JPL. It's like, okay. So, uh, what, what, had they been pushing this for a while and you were, you were not, well, I was, I was a kid. I was like, I was going to do it on my own. I'm going to figure this out on my own kind of thing. So, right. My, yeah. Right. So you don't listen to mom and dad don't know what they're talking yeah. about. Right. Um, and you know, it was, and, and the other thing that, that really helped, uh, was that there was a little press at the point because there was this thing called Pathfinder that was flying to Mars mm-hmm. as I was looking for jobs. And, uh, so I, I ended up, um, well, first of all, I interviewed and, um, the guy who was going to become my boss said, so do you want to build little cars that run around on Mars? And, you know, my, my advice to everyone is if anybody asks you, if you want to build little cars that run around on Mars, you say, yes. Yes. Um, yeah. If somebody asks you, so you were a God, Ray, yeah. you say, <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. You know, let me get back to you. Can I have a weekend? No. Yes. I'm in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I, I put off and, you know, it was funny too, cause I, I also, um, you know, it was, I, I looked at other things. I looked at sort of agricultural s- systems and mm-hmm. they, you know, the industry was not ready for the kinds of robots that I thought needed to be built. Um, mm-hmm. and JPL was the only place in the world at the time where you could say, look, it, cause it was important to me not to build robots that were either, you know, just putting stuff together on the line or academia there are lots of interesting robots in academia but they were academic robots and i wanted to build robots that were the answer to a problem not uh, an intellectual exercise and that's not to you know say anything bad about academia that's really important stuff um but that was just was not where i wanted to find myself and so here was an opportunity to build robots because they were the answer to a problem and uh and so yeah you so so you say yes and say, from then, yeah, you just, it was just about being sort of in the right place at the right time, uh, being lucky because that first rover. So I started working at JPL three weeks after Pathfinder landed. Uh, and so we, and we rode was that, that wave. Uh, roughly year-wise, do you know, what, do you remember when that was? So that was 97. Yeah. So, okay. you know, it was July 4th and 97 uh, was the Pathfinder landing. You know, what nobody kind of remembers is that it was the, the lander. It was actually you know, very much the same, uh, paradigm as the, the Rover and the helicopter. So mm-hmm. Pathfinder was the lander and that was the mission. And there was an mm-hmm. engineering demonstration that, that's Sojourner. Uh, mm-hmm. and so that little Rover was, you know, had no success criteria other than getting off the lander, uh, and mm-hmm. which it did. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was, is a success story from there. And then we just sort of, it's okay, then we're going to do spirit and opportunity. And then we're going to do uh, curiosity and, and perseverance. So that's just, it just grown from there. And yeah, so that's, I, I, saw, yeah. I saw in your, um, in your LinkedIn profile. So you went to, you got a degree in mechanical engineering, right? And under a uh, BS. And then later you went, got a, a master's in mechanical engineering at Stanford or something. Is that, yeah. Yeah. Did, did you go back? Did you take a break or was that something you did kind of while you were at JPL or you could do it at the same time? How'd that work? Uh, out? no, it was straight through. So I went to Cal and then I went to straight to Stanford and then I started. Oh, so you JPL did all that right first. So you got all your education yep. done first. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. does it, to, to, to do this kind of work, is it sort of important to get at least a master's degree? I mean, if you're, 
you know, if you're just have a bachelor's degree, or you kind of like, ah, he's lower skill. That you're, you know, you know, you can't do the cool stuff. You need to go into masters or PhD. I mean, how how does that work in terms of what's required to get? Yeah, robotics is it? interesting that way because, um, you know, to be a good roboticist specifically, uh, you got to understand the whole system, right? That's mm -hmm. kind of goes back to where we started this conversation. Like, you have to understand what the resource demands are for everything in the entire robot. And mm -hmm. you may not do the programming, you may not do the electronics, uh, but you got to understand those things or you're not going to be understanding the people that are on your team uh, and mm -hmm. what, you know, what their pain points are. So uh, my general advice to folks is that, yeah, you, you know, it's not that you have to have an advanced degree. It's just an opportunity to learn this stuff that you're, you know, you just don't have time as undergrad uh, mm -hmm. to learn everything you need to learn. Uh, to be really good as a roboticist, you might be a really good mechanical engineer, you might be a good electrical engineer, and you might be well positioned to learn more. Um, but you'd have to find a position in a company or or, or otherwise where they're going to teach you the other parts of the system that you haven't had a chance to learn. And the master's program was was really good for me in that way, because I was, you know, basically doing, you know, electrical engineering, computer science stuff, it was all embedded systems and writing lots of code even and so as, as a mechanical engineer i was doing i was learning much more about that parts of, uh, of the process and that was so it, it so it sounds like the robotics is a really good position for the for it's almost like the generalist someone who likes to learn lots of different things which is not the case for a lot of people i mean some people like look i just want to focus in on my thing and i think it's really cool and that i just this other stuff is just too much it's just where people are like oh you know Ooh, the mechanical stuff's cool and the software is cool and the power is cool and they just think everything's cool like robotics is for you is that is that that's true, true as long yeah you know the 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 danger is and i'm seeing this you know in uh some of the academic programs these days like you you know I, you can go to school and learn and get a degree in robotics the problem is that they're it's like they're going to give you one class in this and they're going to give you another class in that and they're going to give you another and you, so you don't you come out not actually understanding anything a mile wide and inch deep is the is the criticism yeah, yeah exactly. so so you're going to have to so that's why like you said master's degree it's like okay that's fine but you need at least three or four classes in each of those areas <laughs> exactly you know at a minimum before we can say you know anything about this particular thing yeah and you'd be and you better be really good uh, at one thing like you got to be good at at least one thing and what they call know, the, the T-shaped was that like the T-shaped what they call like the T-shaped engineers or whatever it's like yeah, you, you know everything decently well and you know one thing incredibly well is that kind yeah. of is that sort of yeah. true in this case yeah no I think that's 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 a really good description of it um, and you know it's funny because if you get in a large enough team right there are there are certainly and and certainly this is true of the like the uh, Mars rovers uh, you know perseverance and curiosity in particular these very big missions. Like not everybody who works on those rovers and actually very few of the people that worked on those rovers are roboticists. Um, mm -hmm. Like having a Cracker Jack programmer is, is really important, um, but you got to have other people who can understand the entire system uh, such that they can give the programmer the uh, description of what they need to do sufficiently. Uh, mm -hmm. It's on the smart, smaller teams, then that's, that's really where you need to be able to, and that's why I talk about sort of the roboticist specifically, as opposed to a different, uh, specialty. And you, you know, you need thermal people, you need, you know, you know, structural mechanical engineers, you need all those people to get that stuff together. But the roboticist part of it, you can't really do that job unless you understand the entire system to some significant degree. Now, 
um, in terms of like robotics as a program, I mean, that's got is that is that sort of relatively new in, in you know over the last say twenty years? I mean, I, I imagine for a long time it was more mechanical engineering, electrical engineering. Is that sort of like a or was it like, hey, we have this hybrid program for people interested in robotics, and you, you do some things in each one of our engineering departments? I mean, how how do you do you have any um, you know, could you tell us a little bit about me how that's evolved over the last 20, 30 years? Yeah, no, that's definitely the case. There still aren't a whole lot of robotics programs, but they are becoming much more prevalent. Um, when I was in school in the late nineties, you know, there was only Carnegie Mellon uh, had a degree called robotics, mm -hmm. uh, and everybody, all the other schools, just sort of had robotics as part of um, some other department. So uh, the robotics. Uh, and the people, the professors that were researching robotics uh, when I was at Cal were mostly in the mechanical engineering department because that was kind of where the controls uh, side mm -hmm. of things were. Uh, at Stanford, it was actually the Aero Astro department was was probably a little bit more the robotics area. Uh, and so it just mattered, you know, other schools had computer science hold it. And so it was always just sort of the way the school did it. And then a lot of it, frankly, came down to the student picking the curriculum that actually would be beneficial for that because you were going to come out like I did with a robot, you know, mechanical degree. Um, mm -hmm. and so, uh, and I, I joke because a lot of the people in the section, even though the robotic section, um, is, you know, so we've got about 160 people, uh, the vast majority of them actually write code. Um, uh, mm -hmm. but, uh, of the people that write code, a huge percentage of that are actually what I refer to as fallen mechanical engineers. So they were, you know, those people that came up through mechanical engineering discovered that they like code and then, you know, often went into a, a grad program where they were, you know, basically became uh, the programmers. So again, you get that kind of mixture of capabilities and mm -hmm. understanding uh, and, and it, as it evolves and they just happen to, you know, go more towards the computer science side so, of things. So there's, you said there's about 160 people in your, in the, your division or your, that you, that you manage or see. And yeah. you said, you said the, the vast majority of them or the majority of them are, are coders. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so perception systems, uh, uh, the people, you know, I, I certainly, the people that are running the rovers, uh, we, we have a chunk of those as well. Um, and so they're often, you know, those are people who you, you need to, you need to be a good coder really to, to run the rovers cause you're often writing tools, uh, yeah. to help do it and things like that. So, so yeah, uh, the, the vast majority of people are actually writing code. So that's 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 an interesting thing. I mean, I, I wouldn't have expected that. Um, I would have, I would have said, well, maybe like a fourth or a fifth of them. We have, you know, you know, whatever engineering groups to do all these different systems. And so, why do you think that is? That's it's it's, it's a really interesting thing because that the software is starting to say software is eating the world. Software is eating JPL or software is eating. <laughs> you know, you know I think like, the, the balance the balance has always kind of been like that. Um, Part of it is, well, there are a couple parts to it. One is that the research, like there's just a lot more to do on the programming side in research um, because there's always new algorithms and there's always, and, and it's actually a relatively low cost place to do your research. So mm -hmm. uh, you can get a lot more people doing a lot more work, um, on, you know, on the programming side of, of the house. Uh, a lot mm -hmm. of the programs that we do uh, that are not for NASA you know, aren't asking us to build stuff. They're asking us to write software. Uh, so some of it's about the customers that we have as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it just takes a lot of people to write code. 
Yeah. And the other part is when you get around to the flight stuff like that, the actual ratio of the number of people that, that takes to do the Rover is, mm -hmm. and that's all of JPL. Like that, that's probably an important <clears throat> distinction to make. Mm -hmm. Like when we, when we fly something, that's all of JPL putting that together. And then that ratio right. is, is flipped. Uh, there's okay. a lot more people dealing with the hardware be because all of that stuff's really difficult. Like designing hardware for space is really, really hard and it takes a lot of effort. Um, and so that's where the majority of the, the people are is, is on the, the hardware side of stuff and not on the software for those flight missions. And in that case, that's all of JPL and not the, just the robotic section that's, that's tackling the problem. Well, since we have a lot of, um, of, of coders probably listen to this, they're going to know, well, what language, what are you guys writing mm. this in? I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to take a wild guess that it's not JavaScript. It is not JavaScript. <laughs> what, 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 what do you guys, you know, uh, do most of your flight code? On? Flight code is almost all C, um, mm -hmm. with, with some C++ mixed in there. Mm -hmm. And in any number of languages for other sort of, you know, random stuff that you're doing, putting together, um. Yeah. So, you know, obviously, so, you know, a lot of the stuff gets prototyped in MATLAB, the algorithmic stuff mm -hmm. gets prototyped in MATLAB. Um, and you know, which I think it was more of a tool than a, than a language, but you know, uh, and then, um, a lot of the analytical stuff that we do, um, uh, like for understanding what's going on with the rovers and those tools, uh, are it's, it's Python, like you being able to, to look at the test data and whatnot. There's a lot of Python that goes into that. Um, uh, that's that's kind of the majority of it, right? You gotta. So, so when you're hiring um, coders for so just to just to be specific about this, um, yeah. e most of your coders are also like say fallen mechanical engineers. There are people who have degrees, masters, undergrad degrees in mechanical, electrical engineering, or some type of engineering, and then also can code. Is that is that what the vast majority of them, or do you have you have some of those people bridge <laughs> between the the engineers and like, hey, we got all these pure coders in just because we need so many of them, and there's so many complex coding that. You know, as long as you have a couple engineers, you know, hybrid engineers slash coders on the team, that's fine. Or, or is it just sort of, that's a requirement? It's, it's definitely not a requirement, uh, you know, and as, um, robotics and programming for robotics becomes more prevalent, uh, we see people mm -hmm. that are more, you know, coming from the CS side of the house, uh, mm -hmm. you know, programming robots, you know, 20 some odd years ago, just wasn't a thing. And so you didn't get mm -hmm. your programmers from the CS department because they were doing other stuff. Uh, right, and, but, right. but today that's not as true. I mean, that there's, there's a lot more interest in it across the board. So, uh, we do that, that model of mechanical engineer to, to programmer is, uh, less common than it was, but it's still not, mm -hmm. uh, not, not common. So, so speaking of, you know, career in this area. So if you were going to go work at JPL doing this kind of stuff, cause this stuff, I mean, seemed like a really big, exciting, fun job. Um, are you committing to sort of like government slash academia pay structures or is it the kind of thing like, you know, actually you can make a fairly good living. I mean, you're not going to make Google money, but <laughs> you can make a fairly, you know, you can make a fairly good living and be comfortable and actually buy a house or whatever and still send robots to, you know, to other planets. I mean, what, yeah. how, how does that, what's that like? It's, you know, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to dodge this in a way, but okay. I, I'm, I'm going to say part of this is, is I don't know because I don't know where robotics is going right now. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. uh, this is probably the rate of change of robotics as a, as a field is, uh, uh, you know, 
the rate of change is just increasing. Um, mm -hmm. So and accelerating, I think, is the the important bit. And so the pay structures that go along with that. So JPL and engineering at JPL, um, you know, we we keep to market um, mm -hmm. and market in LA and you know all of that mm -hmm. entails. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, uh, I think people of all sorts of disciplines will tell you that it's hard to afford a house in LA. Um, and then it's, and no it doesn't matter how much money you make almost. Right. You know, so that's yeah, it's true. So, yeah. so I think, I think that the, the pay structure is good. Um, I think the pay structure, uh, is, um, you know, in LA is problematic because of the cost of housing and things, other things. So, uh, right. So I think, so hopefully I didn't dodge that too completely, but it's, no, it's no, just it's, a very difficult fun. thing. Yeah. No, I know it's and, a hard. It's just it's just sort of an interesting, interesting, you know, because people go at academia, it's like, well, you know, you know, it's just your 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 financial expectations are completely different than if you're heading off to you know work in a in industry or something. Um, yeah. Especially, and in it is interesting because you know you talked about Google money and whatnot, like that. There's a there's a. Uh, an absolute component of this that the people, the other entities that are interested in robotics in the world are Google and Amazon. And, you know, so, you know, even trying to describe what market means is a, a challenging. Yeah. Cause it's changing. Right. I mean, right. Because I, I remember when Uber was trying to get into the self-driving car thing, they basically went over and hired like half the department at Carnegie Mellon or something. They just totally raided it. And everybody yeah. came in and like, where'd everybody go? Yeah, <laughs> no, they're paying a, I, obscene amounts or something. Yeah, no, I, I knew a lot of those guys. Um, yeah, so they had the the National Robotics, uh, it, was, it was called NREC, um, Engineering mm -hmm. Center. And uh, yeah, they, they kind of just sort of showed up and took everybody out of the inside of, of NREC and called that Uber. Uh, <laughs> you work it for us now. You're like, I am, yes. Just, uh, wow. Yeah, that's yeah. A, so, so when that happens, of course, and you obviously need top rate, top notch people when you have a $2.5 billion, you know, project, you can't say, well, we're going to take the third raiders because that's all who left and we're just not willing to pay more than, you know, $70,000 or something. You're like, well, that can't happen. So you just have to pay what you, what you got to pay, I guess, to get, yeah. get the people you need. Um, I guess it's well, good for those people. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. you know, one of the things I, I try to remind people, particularly, you know, when we're doing interviews and stuff like that, is that, uh, you know, there's, there are, uh, there's compensation that isn't about money. And, um, you know, there's uh, something in particular about going outside and looking up at the sky and finding a little pink dot and telling your kid that your work is on that little pink dot doing something. Uh, and you know, it's, it's both sort of maudlin and also absolutely true that, that that's true, right? There's that there's something to that. And there are only so many people in the world that can say that, that that's what they've done. And I'm looking forward to the time when that's not true, that there are lots of people's mm -hmm. stuff on Mars. And when that's mm -hmm. true, then I would like to do something else. And we've got, we've got other things to try and that's always what's important about JPL. JPL shouldn't, uh, try to own Mars. And I don't think we do, right. There's, we, we work at the pleasure of, of, uh, the United States and, um, 
and we need to let people do what they're going to do uh, and that they have an appetite to do. And then we're going to go find something, the next hard problem and, and tackle that. And that, those yeah, are the people once, that we cause once, cause want Because once there. SpaceX, once Elon Musk and SpaceX put a com- condominium complex on Mars, I guess you're going to be right. <laughs> having to do something else. Yeah. Um, and more power to right, them than everybody Jupiter, else. Guys. Yeah. We're on to Jupiter, guys. We're on to the moons of Jupiter or whatever. Yeah. And it's always um, one of those interesting things about the, you were asking earlier about, you know, do we partner with people and whatnot and, and anything that's really commodity level or reduced to practice, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that, those are not the things that we are there to do best. Uh, we're do, right. we're there to do the things that no one's ever tried before. Right. Right. Well, so I, I, I totally, I, 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 you know, what you're saying resonates with me because I think you know, the idea of going and working at Facebook or Google and working on some algorithm that's going to optimize, further optimize the showing of ads or whatever. It's just sort of like, just so you can make, I don't know, do we really want our kids doing that? Is that really, you know, I mean, you think, oh, my kid going to work at NASA. I don't want my kid going to work at <laughs> Facebook, you know? I mean, yeah. if he decides he wants to work there, you know, for a few years, okay, I, I get it. You want to make an ATM run, you know? But um, I think... You know, you the people who are the happiest in life or say the most fulfilled in life are the people who are doing something they think is important and worth doing. And once you have any you know, all the studies on happiness is like once you make over a certain amount of money, it's sort of doesn't make that much difference in terms of your relative level of contentment. And um, it's really about like, do you get up in the morning and are you excited about what you're doing? And you have a certain level of agency and purpose and autonomy and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. along those lines. I mean, how awesome is your job? I mean, do you go, someone's paying me to do this? I mean, is this, I mean, I'm sure there's, you know, 160 people and where you have people, you have headaches. I mean, I, I get that, right? That's, that's, yeah. that's comes with management. You get a certain number of like meetings and memos and emails and crap you just got to do to manage people. But that aside, I mean, do you wake up every day and you're like, man, this is, you know, how long are they going to, how, how long until they just kick me out of here? Cause this is awesome. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I, what I'll tell people is that, um, often is that I, I love my work and even if I don't mm-hmm. always love my job. And so there, there's mm-hmm. some days when I'm doing my job and there's some days when I'm doing my work and I, you know, it's always exciting to do my work. Uh, and you know, to be perfectly honest about it, I like doing stuff like this, like having this mm-hmm. kind of conversation because it's a good reminder. Like it's very easy to, you know, not feel like you want to get up in the morning because you're tired and you know, you don't want to deal with whatever's coming up. Um, but then you actually tell somebody what you're going to be doing. It's like, well, I got to go to this meeting about how we're going to explore Enceladus and Europa. You're like, what did I just say? I just said that we're gonna, okay. We're gonna... <laughs> okay. Yeah. Like that's not fair. Yeah, right. Why do you get to do that? I'm not doing, yeah. I'm going to have another budget meeting, you know, like you're going to, like, that's yeah. super cool. So yeah, because so... this is the kind of stuff as an, as a parent, this is the kind of stuff you sort of dream of your kids doing if they're into this kind of stuff they're into stem you're like you know you know if you do a really good job kid you know you might go work at nasa and do robots and space and stuff and you know it's this sort of vague notion of just something that's not only fun and cool but just important yeah you know? and that that's you know i certainly hope for my kids that they find something that's that's fulfilling and important to do and they're not you know not doing it for the paycheck uh right so Money's good, but, uh, you know, that's, that's not going to keep you happy. Right. hundred, uh, hundred, hundred, hundred percent. And you have, you have kids yourself, right? That are, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, what, what uh, are almost your age, seven. What are the ages of you? Yeah, almost seven and uh, eleven. All right. So, are they junior nerds too? Or are they? They don't even mm. care about that stuff. They just will care about. You they're know, in love with Encanto right now, and there are no robots in Encanto. That's okay. Okay. Uh, but uh, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know that they have to be nerds yet to contribute, and and it's going to be interesting. <laughs> um, you know, just talking about tech and how tech works. You know, I'm not entirely sure um, how. I'm not entirely sure how engineering is going to work 20 years from now, and mm -hmm. and what kind of traits are going to be most important to to people uh, going into engineering in that time frame. Because uh, I wouldn't, you know, the ability for tools to help us, and you know, the yeah. And I, I basically, I just hope that actually creativity is the, the most important, uh, trait and, um, uh, that, that we're getting people into tech who are creative and thoughtful and frankly, ethical thought, you know, mm -hmm. actually, you know, look at the way that technology interacts with society. Uh, those might be the more important and driving aspects of, of engineering in the future. Well, you know, if, if. You're talking about the importance of roboticists to have um, to be well-rounded and knowing on all these all the aspects of the robot, and 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 I think you could say that about humans. It's like okay, people who are not well-rounded and don't understand ethics or don't understand the humanistic aspects of things or the emotional or psychological and only focused on the you know the algorithms. I mean, they they tend to not come up with very good solutions. It tends to people who have the best solutions are taking all these things and putting them together and saying, okay, how, you know, given what problem we're trying to solve and the people who we're trying to solve it for and how they're going to react and how this is going to affect them and how people, you know, what do we do? Like, that's the best thing. That's why I think it's so important to give, try and give kids a grounding or students a, a grounding in all these things and try and push them not to be just sort of just laser focused on knowing as much, you know, math and science as possible. It's like, yeah, okay, you got to be good at stuff like that if you want to, you know, have a robot that actually works, but you or, or, or code that works, but you need to you need to be you need to be uh, schooled and, and educa educated in these other other things and be a well yeah. human. I mean, I think that's with the big the big thing that a famous line I think at at um at Apple when Steve, about Steve Jobs in particular, but I think I read this book recently and they were talking about that. It was sort of like sitting in between the worlds of, of engineering and the humanities was sort of what made Apple special. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and I also, you know, I've, I've come to really, you know, the, the long, <laughs> it's interesting because you asked me something about how I got to, to be the, the section manager, you know, at, uh, you know, the place I got to now. And, a lot of that had to do with watching what made things successful and mm -hmm. seeing that being able to organize a team uh, and and deal with people was a better predictor of of the the kind of success that I was interested in. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and I I don't know that this is blanket across industries because I've I haven't worked in them, but. I know that it's very difficult to put together, uh, a, you know, a successful space robot, uh, without, um, putting the people part of it together, uh, appropriately. And, you know, that starts with hiring the right people, people who are motivated by the right stuff. Um, but also it has a lot to do with the chemistry of the team and things of that nature. So 
become more and more interested in that aspect of it and to whatever level I've got an ability or talent to, to help through that means, you know, I'm happy to do that. So it's, it's, it's like sort of meta level. It's like, how do you put together a system, a, a, a team that could build the robot? You're engineering yeah. at a different level and uh, you need the right combinations of expertise, but you need the right kind of people who can work together. And I used to, I remember this one, uh, this famous soccer coach, and he would say that he would, he would like to, uh, he would, the players that he was most interested in were joy spreaders. The guys that would come in and just make everyone in the locker room really a, in a good mood and excited to be there, as opposed to the grumpy guy who's always bitching about his, you know, his contract or this or that. And it just brings everybody down. And it just yeah. has this huge downward, um, you know, impact. And, I, and I'm sure that probably affects, you know, a team like this. Even if people are optimistic, like we can solve this, we can do this, as opposed to somebody constantly bitching about, well, this department they didn't deliver the thing, the specs are unclear again. And, <laughs> whatever yeah. you know it is get another bug in their thing you know those people it's like they may be right about something but it's like dude killing this right you it's got like, everybody yeah. spending the last good days pissed about that email you sent as opposed to solving the problem i mean is that is that sort of like energy and optimism is that stuff uh, important uh, important to you and things that you consider for your team yeah i think it's uh, well yeah i think it's hugely important and you know it's it's been all the more so the last you know nearly two years now because you got to be able to, to spread that that attitude through the screen and not in person. And so a lot of the tools that we would have used previously are not there. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, yeah, uh, it is absolutely true. Now I think there's, it's not just joy because a lot of it is, is about, uh, coming together to a common goal and, um, and not everybody has to be happy about it, but they do need to be fulfilled about it. Um, and it's one of the interesting things I, uh, sort of robotics research versus our flight robotics, mm -hmm. uh, is that I, I've always had a lot of fun with our research robotics, but, uh, the space robotics and stuff we actually flew, that's the stuff that is most fulfilling and, right. um, you know, the, the day-to-day -day attitudes that you get, um, doing those two things are, are different for sure. Uh, right. in my experience. Yeah. So we're, we're coming up on an, uh, I guess about an hour, a little over an hour. And I, I want to be conscious of your, uh, respectful of your time, but I want to ask you just oh, one or two okay. questions. We just, and I always seem to finish off with like TV shows and movies at the end of this. So I want to, <laughs> uh, that's the, for whatever reason, that's where we always end up. Um, the Martian. Yeah. Do you remember that movie? You're the book with, um, so yeah. I, I'm going to, yeah. So the, I've never seen the movie I've intended what? to. Yeah. Oh, I, I, but I read on. the book. I read the book when it first came out. Okay. Well, um, and so I, I if people, you know, say something about the movie, and I'm like, I, don't, I only read the book. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially well, I guess your kids are still a little on the young side to really appreciate it. So if they were like 10, 11, you'd probably be watching it. And, yeah, a okay, bit more. all right. We could yeah. save that. Yeah, I know sometimes you save movies for your kids. Like I know I'm gonna watch this with my kids. Let's give them a few years and we'll see it. Um, yeah. Because I was going to ask you how realistic you felt it was from your perspective. I mean, I know a lot of it had to do with things maybe outside your particular area. But if you, when you read the book, were you like, huh, yeah, it's no, it's, pretty it was, good. It, it was pretty good. I mean, I, really, the, it was funny because, uh, and this was very particular to my experience, like the thing that, well, there are a couple of things that were unrealistic. Um, but uh, the the physics version of it that, I, that jumped out was actually the windstorm at the very beginning. Um, mm -hmm. and that was right. because one of the things that I had to deal with, uh, when I worked on the curiosity Rover 
was, uh, you know, we, we drill sample and when we drill sample on curiosity, it's turned to powder, uh, mm-hmm. during the drilling process on purpose. And then we go over and we drop that powder into these instruments that are in the Rover. And so, uh, I ended up spending a fair amount of time up at, uh, at NASA Ames in a super big chamber that they've got, uh, that we could use. And we basically had a, a, we built a wind tunnel inside of a vacuum chamber, you know, dropped the whole thing down to, to Mars pressures and then blew what we knew to be Mars like winds and see if, if we actually would just scatter sample everywhere, if, if we got caught in a dust devil kind of thing. And the, the right. funny thing is like, you, you, you read about like the, you know, average wind velocity on Mars is something like 10 meters a second if it's blowing which is really fast. Um, mm-hmm. but there's, you know, that pressure thing, you know, means that there's not a whole lot of force behind it. So that was just kind of like, like, mm-hmm. I know about Mars winds. This isn't it. Like, that's not, this ain't gonna happen. That, that's not the way that's going to, that's not going to happen. Right. So, you know, that was the one that stood out, stood out for me because I, I'd had to live on, with, you know, what does it mean to get blown around on Mars, uh, in, in reality. And, uh, so that one, that one kind of popped out to me. Do do you have um, uh, do you have any particular like sci-fi movies or or TV series as a roboticist that you like? I mean, may not be exactly, you know, it's still pretty speculative that you're like this is cool. Like people need to see this. Or something you recommend your any favorites that you go to? Good question. I'm gonna take it. Yeah, away. I, I'm gonna take it. It's not Terminator. Yeah. So not Terminator. It is not. It is not Terminator. <laughs> Actually, you know, it's funny because um, and again, this is a little bit of. I, like, I guess what I'd do is I'd point you to sort of the, the, the old Japanese anime cartoons mm. that had robots in it. So, you know, sort of the Astro right. Boy level stuff, um, you know, partly because that's what I found inspirational, but also mm-hmm. you know, most of my career, uh, I call it the C3PO problem. Um, mm-hmm. and as much as, a, you know, Star Wars as a, as a fantasy genre movie is fantastic and you know one of my favorite mm-hmm. things and certainly uh, a touchstone uh, of my childhood but you know trying to explain to people decision makers why we weren't building c3po um or r2d2 has, has been like this this problem um and that's sort of on the good side you know of the good robot side of things and then there's then there's the terminator problem and it's like no mm-hmm. it's not gonna come for you you know um so I've spent most of my time fighting against basically any, uh, any robot that I can think of offhand. Um, right. And I would say outside of say data from Star Trek. Um, but you know, he was, they, they really used it as a, an exploration of consciousness and, and, and humanity. So it was, he, mm-hmm. he existed as a robot, not to be a robot, but to be a, a juxtaposition with humans and to explore humanity. Um, which I, you know, that I always thought that was fantastic, uh, but it really wasn't about robotics per se. Um, so that's okay. Well, well, if we talk about like, so let's, let's talk future then. Let's, so let's go purely speculative. If you, if you start looking forward to like, what is some of the cool robotic stuff you think is going to happen over the next 20, 30 years, sort of like in our, in our lifetime, um, is, is it going to be like the micro robots, you know, kind of stuff? Or is it going to be bigger? I mean, what, what do you see the stuff, the, the cooler things that you think we might might see come into reality well i mean i'll start with my corner of the solar system which is to say i think that we will see robots that are going all sorts of places like that's where Mm -hmm. i 
Like if I, if I were running, you know, the, well, I, I was going to say NASA, but it's not really about NASA. It's really about mm -hmm. just sort of space policy, right? We would just say, look, the solar system is a really big place. Every time we go someplace, we learn something new. We need to build a robot that goes to every one of those places so we can find out what we're going to learn. Um, and it's just, it's a voyage of exploration and we're going to build the robots that explore the solar system. Uh, so I think that's completely doable. And I think that, um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get there, right. Cause people will, will be interested enough to, to make that happen. So that's kind of, you know, the, the softball answer to go that, everywhere, but... go everywhere, see everything. Okay. That's yeah. okay. Let's do that. Yeah. And okay. Let's at least do that. Um, okay. But on earth, you know, I think we'll see a lot more in the home. Uh, you know, some, some people that worked with me at JPL, uh, if you want an example, right. They, they, uh, uh, went to the Toya research Institute and are, uh, taking things that we sort of developed at JPL and, and really running with them, um, mm -hmm. in that venue. And those are actually in home aid robots. Um, right. and, uh, the idea that we can, uh, have something beyond the Roomba, uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's probably because you're going to, it's, it's not going to be the hundred dollar vacuum cleaner, which I think is really, you know, that's an important product, but so is the robot that's going to live in your house that probably costs something closer to your car. Mm. And, uh, once we see that level of investment, um, by normal households, uh, we'll see much more, uh, it, you know, advanced capabilities from those robots in the home and it'll be, you know, hopefully the stuff that we really, you know, will free us up to do other things. It's, it's, it's the age old version of what you want a robot for, but it's the dirty, dangerous, and dull. And particularly mm -hmm. in the home, like most of the time, that just means the dull. And which is kind of like, it's, which is kind of like what the C3PO or some of those robots, you remember like Luke Skywalker is kind of boring. I mean, Roomba Plus, walking around doing the dishes, doing a little bit of the yard work. I mean, whatever. Um, yeah. I mean. Um, and I, you know, particularly for our generation, uh, you know, some of it is, to me, sort of motivated by what do I want in my house when I'm old? And and do I want my kids having to come over and help me, you know, do whatever, mm -hmm. whatever chores? Or can I just, can I just have a robot to do that? Because that would be cool. And, right. you know, I could certainly imagine, given where technology is today, uh, the technology advancement required to have a robot in the house folding clothes for me is not that much of a leap. Um, well, if you look at the, uh, was it the Boston Dynamics robots, which the one mm -hmm. doing parkour and stuff? I mean, if you have something that's, it's, it's going to stay in the house, then it's, the power doesn't have to be that long before it can recharge or whatever. And I guess the batteries are getting, so we know it's dexterous, it has the possibility of being fairly dexterous and strong enough to move stuff. Um, mm -hmm. and the, if, if you're in the house, it's like, okay, it works for an hour and then it has to recharge. No big deal. Every half hour it comes off and does something, but the batteries, as we see, you know, the batteries keep getting cheaper and better every year, not like Moore's law rate, but it's like 20 or 30% better every year or something like that. Is something that, like that yeah. is, is that, so, so that's kind of, like you said, 30 years, it's like, okay, you can have a Boston dynamics robot in your house in 15, 20 years that you said may cost $20,000, but. It does all the all the uh, all the housework, all the stuff you don't want to do that nobody yeah. wants to do. Yeah, and I don't need it to have you know I don't need it to make conversation with me. It's not it's not a companion, uh, right? At least that's not what I'm looking for, right? And that's that's a lot of the stuff where it gets really hard because it is about learning and, and AI, and, you know, in a very true sense. Uh, whereas 
and I know this is my particular bias about robotics, but if we stick to the things that are actually practical, this is why the Roomba vacuum cleaner is a, an important product is because someone, and actually it was funny because we, uh, I was working with the iRobot folks, uh, when they were developing that, um, we were doing they were with idea lab, which is not too far. Right. Is that right? iRobot? Uh, iRobot was, iRobot was in, in, uh, in Boston. They were actually an MIT oh, okay. spinoff. Okay. Um, okay. and so they, at the time they were, uh, they were building what, what's now called the pack bots, which are like these little tank, like robots have been used for, mm -hmm. uh, explosive disposal. Uh, mm -hmm. but at the same time they were developing this, this cool little vacuum cleaner. Um, and, uh, you know, that looked like a really, it's like, there's an application and, and people aren't going to look at it as a robot. They're going to look at it as their vacuum cleaner. And mm -hmm. that's really where I think robots, you know, when I look at robotics and when, where it's going to be important, it's where we're not going to look at it and say robot. And so when I say things like it's going to fold your clothes for you, it's not, it's not the robot. You're not buying a robot. You're buying the ability to have something fold your clothes for you. Um, yeah. Because if, if I, I got, I got news for you. If like, if we have a robot that can fold clothes and do dishes, I mean, we would spend, my wife would spend $20,000 on it. And she wouldn't even ask me like, it's done, done. Yeah. Like she's like, I'm not doing that ever again, you know. Yeah, so that I think there, I think there's a real market there for that because it's those it's those chores that are painful. They just seems like it's every day when you have kids, right? You have three more kids. It's like you're doing dishes every day. You're unloading dishes every day. You're doing it's like laundry never stops running, and it takes up so much time. But like you said, it's not it's dirty, boring, dull. Okay, robot and yep. Um, I, I think there's, I think, I think that's a really good, um, good point you make because I think there's a real market there, and it sounds like that's not a huge bar to clear to get make something that's relatively competent in that yeah. area. I mean, it's funny. One of the things that that I, I point at is another good example. So we sort of started with the Roomba. The the next obvious thing that we have today that's that I consider, you know, real robots are in fact those autonomous vehicles. And as mm -hmm. as we were talking about, there's still a long way to go, but you know, they're really good robots. And even if they are not, you know, class five, you know, fully autonomous, you know, no steering wheel mm -hmm. in the vehicle stuff, they're doing a lot and, and, um, and they don't have to be perfect. And they don't, you know, even if they're just assisting, there's a, there's a school of thought out there. That's not really about taking driving away from the driver. It's about making sure the driver doesn't make mistakes, uh, which mm -hmm. kind of flips the, the paradigm in its head a little bit. Um, but you know that could be hugely important and those are robots i mean you're sitting a modern car is a robot uh right. we just don't call it that and i think again it's another one of those places where you don't hear about robot cars you hear about autonomous vehicles or something else and um there'll be more and more things where you just substitute whatever that that name is as opposed to robot blah uh, and i think yeah so it's, it's it's sort of interesting so like i i i had um my career has spent, uh, in a lot of ways, has been automating things that were before done completely manually, whether it was high-frequency trading systems, whether it was Uber and taxi dispatch, or, in, you know, smart tutoring, math education. And it's rarely about utter, just complete replacement. It's, it's a lot of times it's about um, just making things more efficient, that you can have a fewer people do a better job at a much larger scale, you know? And it sounds like robots are gonna be doing that. It's like, well, my job is based on robots. It's like, no, robots doing the crap work, so now you can spend more time doing other higher value things that are frankly gonna be more interesting to you anyway.
Um, yeah. Do you think that's sort of a, a true, a generally truer statement than just replacing people? Oh, for sure. Yeah, no, I think that's that's absolutely true. Um, I mean, it doesn't make and, as good and, of a headline. It's not it's not a good clickbait yeah. headline. <laughs> it's like, oh my god, no. your robots are taking the job. It's it's like, okay, well, you could do a better job with less work, you know, or whatever. You can get a fewer accidents. You can whatever it is. Um, but that stuff, that stuff is like, yeah, I guess it's not scary. It doesn't it doesn't cause fear and doesn't make people you know look at ads, you know, yeah. clicking. But um, well, that's a, that's I think that's the future we all want anyway, and. Um, and uh, I hope so. well, Brett, I I think this is a, a, a probably a, a good place to to leave it on. I mean, you've you've almost spent an hour and a half with uh, with us today, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time um, to, to 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 for this interview. It's it's been been fascinating, and um, I can see why Justin kept uh, you know <laughs> nudging me. He's like, "All right, let's get this done, man. This is going to be fun." So um, this is this has been great. Thank thank you so much. Yeah, you're very welcome. It was a lot of fun to do it. All right, that's a wrap. We're out.